welcome to the Move Daily Health Podcast, where we share information to empower you to be your own health hero. Welcome back to the Move Daily Health Podcast. I'm Dane Wallace, here again with Freya Spence. And today we're going to dive into some health and fitness research updates. But before we get to that, I'd just like to remind everybody at home that you can find us online at movewelldaily.com and on Instagram at move underscore daily underscore EDS. And don't hesitate to uh, like this podcast and leave us a review and subscribe. All those fun things. So Freya, today we're going to look at six research highlights from 2023. And we chose these six topics because they're often discussed in health and fitness and they're subjects that we happen to speak about frequently here on the podcast and with our clients. Thanks, Dane. Uh, so our goal is to touch on you know, what the topic is, why it's relevant, or perhaps has gained attention as of late, what we used to think or know, and what this current evidence is showing in contrast to or in addition to what we knew before. And uh, within the six topics that we chose, we did choose a few systematic reviews because these reviews were high quality and a great way of consolidating the evidence to date and really uh, helping us refine notable causations or, or correlations within the topics at hand. Speaking of reviews, the first thing we're going to look at is an umbrella review on the topic of muscle hypertrophy, a.k.a. building muscle. So historically, we know that the optimal recommended rep range for building muscle, um, aka hypertrophy, is 8 to 12 reps. So when we were in school, um, in undergrad, back way too long ago now, we were definitely both taught at different institutions that the rep range was 8 to 12 reps if you want to build muscle. Now, this was along the same spectrum of if you want to strength train and build strength and power, it has to be 1 to 5 reps. If you want to build muscular endurance, you need to be over 15 reps. Well, we do know that the strength part does ring true. Like, you need to get neural adaptations for heavy one-rep lifting. You have to lift progressively heavier weights. But what this study uh, or uh, umbrella review uh, told us uh, is that there's actually no ideal rep range for hypertrophy. So what we found is that it can be built at any range at all. The main variables that influence hypertrophy are total volume, and tempo, and in this case, the eccentric fo uh, focus of the lift. So to maximize muscle building, you need to accumulate enough volume to stimulate growth. This is, uh, based on the research, this typically looks at two to four sets in a workout, or upwards of about 10 sets per week. But it does depend on the training. As we know in weightlifting, well, we know, I think a lot of people don't know, is that there are low responders to exercise and there are high responders to exercise. So high volume for one person may not be all that high for another person. Somebody may have to do a lot more volume relative to their, to their peer just based on their genetic predisposition for building muscle. But what we know is that generally in this research, two to four sets in a training session, whether that was three, four, or five reps or 20, 30 reps, um, it was the set frequency that you needed and to get enough sets in a week. Uh, now, on the tempo side of things, it was the eccentric portion of the lift. So if you're doing a push-up, for example, the concentric portion is when you push away from the ground, and the eccentric is when you're being pulled back down towards the floor. So to build muscle, you want to go nice and slow on that second portion of the lift, the eccentric portion. I think uh, we're often speaking to our clients about their tempo and going a little bit slower, 
And controlling this does have a really important uh, part of uh, contributing to hypertrophy. So if you can, so I guess the big takeaway, the teaching point of this is focusing on time under tension and tempo is very important. And then it's the consistent effort over time. So if you think about a muscle you want to grow, are you stimulating that muscle to fatigue enough over a, a set period of time to make it grow? I also think it's important to note that you don't have to take it to failure. That's another thing that the research did point out is that you don't have to go to absolute failure. There are inherent risks with always taking a muscle to failure or a joint range to failure. Uh, and that can lead to missing gym sessions from being too sore, which is then going to contribute to not getting enough total volume. So going to failure is not necessary. It's just that consistent effort over time. Yeah, and having the ability to recover from that consistent consistent effort. So I think one of the biggest things is that how you train in order to elicit hypertrophy or even elicit just like a, I guess, supposedly, a, or sorry, even just to elicit sort of a maintenance, I would say, uh, y you, can, you can change it up over time. It doesn't have to look the exact same. So if you started, you know, a... Uh, strength training routine and you were sticking mostly within the 8 to 12 and that was working really well for you and you were going to the gym three days a week and that was also working well for you, well, over time that might look different. Sometimes it might be four times, sometimes it might be two. You might start to play with different rep ranges because ultimately if you've been mostly exposing yourself to one way of doing things, you will kind of like reach your max. And so mixing it up is good and not only that, we know that mixing it up can still confer confer benefits. You don't have to stay in your little tiny window. Yeah, that's a good general lesson right there is that like what used to work for you might not work for you anymore because the body is constantly changing. So especially with weight training, there's a lot of adapt adaptation that happens over time. Uh, so I think after hypertrophy, you would like to speak a little about menstrual cycles. So menstrual cycles uh, or research around them have been in the spotlight a little bit recently. And part of this is because menstrual cycles were long neglected in not just research, but in a lot of different areas. And, you know, it wasn't something that a lot of people who have a menstrual cycle even spoke about. As athletes growing up, it really was more a matter of like whether you, you had one or not by a certain age. It, the nuance behind them and, and the benefits of having one were never really readily discussed. And so there, there's a lot of research that's been um, produced in the last, I, I want to say, decade, because there's a lot of catch-up to be done. I will also say that in this time, there have been a lot of products produced around menstrual cycles. And a lot of these products focus, and, and some of these are apps, a lot of them focus on telling you how to adjust your eating or how to adjust your training in accordance with sort of generalized guidance on what phase of the menstrual cycle you're in. Now, unfortunately, a lot of these are not well supported by science. And so the review that we looked at, it was a great review released at some point this year, I'm blanking on the month, <laughs> released recently in this past year, was looking at the... Um, female-derived data, so human-female-derived data on the menstrual cycle to look at substrate oxidation. So this is metabolism of carbs and fats as energy sources, performance, so physical performance, vascular effects, and resistance training-induced hypertrophy. And so part of the reason we emphasize that they looked at, and uh, the paper emphasized this as well, at human-derived data is because there are 
studies that are done in ri um, rice, in rat or mice models, sorry. And as much as those help us understand aspects of it, they can't necessarily be uh, directly related to humans. There are a lot of other factors that will play influence on someone's performance and hypertrophy, and we don't really have the same ability to measure those on mice and rats. The other uh, model that can often come about or be used in research is a tissue model. And so they're not looking at the hormones in a person as they go through a training cycle or anything like that. They're looking at female tissue and exposing it to different hormones, which can be very beneficial for understanding certain molecular mechanisms, but it's still not the same as a person who's going through several training cycles and going through several menstrual cycles, because we don't know what the concentrations of those hormones are like at the tissue level when we're, you know, living and breathing versus tissue that's been extracted from the body. Not only that, uh, no single hormone operates in isolation, so there's a lot of crossover. And if you look at um, if you look at cycles that have been tracked with various samples, so not just calendar tracking because that's not high quality, but if you look at cycles that have had uh, blood, urine, and calendar tracking combined, and you look at the hormone levels throughout, you'll see a lot of variation between individuals, and even a given individual will have variability from month to month. It's really uh, difficult to do full research like that. So sometimes when people get a little frustrated thinking, why don't we have evidence on that yet? To track a eumenorrheic cycle does require taking a lot of different kinds of samples and that can sometimes be uh, limiting because that means a participant needs to be able to show up at the lab multiple, multiple times a month for several months in a row and not everybody has that. So it, it's not to excuse it, it is to say like, a lot of studies have done that and done that really well, but that is why there are uh, general limitations. So with that said, this particular review found that uh, there were no differences between the follicular and luteal phases of the menstrual cycle for people with eumenorrheic cycles and for people with or, or who were taking oral contraceptives. And they were not associated with marked differences in exercise performance and appear unlikely to influence muscular hypertrophy in response to exercise uh, resistance exercise training. They also found that there were no changes in either fat or carbohydrate oxidation, which is also really interesting because there have been a lot of apps that have promoted eating very uh, specifically for those two phases based on other research. And, um, you know, ultimately, we, we know that it's individualization that matters. So even these authors, I'll read a quote from them, is um, their standpoint was that rather than creating general guidelines, the authors recommend a personalized approach based on each individual's response to exercise performance across the menstrual cycle. And we can't emphasize that enough. We know we've worked with a lot of um, athletes and we know that there's a ton of variability and not only is there a lot of variability in the menstrual cycle and its influence on their body so that might be as, as simple as uh, somebody gets no bloat and another person gets a lot of bloat and can't brace someone gets debilitating cramps and another person doesn't notice anything and all of those things happen and and honestly one single person can change quite a lot throughout their cycles but we also know that these aren't the 
only things that influence someone's performance. Their psychological state plays a huge role, and if we are sending the message that you are at a weaker state at this particular point in your cycle, and you're at risk of harm or, or whatnot, that can predispose the person to be more fearful in their performance and hold back. So we can't ignore um, the effect, the other effects that are, you know, playing a key role on a person's ability to perform. It of course really does depend on being individualized in your approach. And so I will say I work with a lot of clients who have uh, EDS or HSD. And one very notable thing that has uh, come about is people who have a eumenorrheic cycle, or we assume they have a eumenorrheic cycle based on certain symptoms, is around ovulation, we start to see that there's lower quality sleep. We see that there's more, um, there's typically more of a, of a flare kind of profile that might occur. And flares can be so different from one person to the other, but they might feel way more lax and unstable in their joints. They might feel just generalized weakness. Fatigue might go up. And so that's not, we don't say, oh, well, then you can't move and, and, you should do nothing. It's more just that we adjust our approach in accordance with their symptoms. And so even when I work with a new person, we don't assume that that is definitely when they're going to feel more lax or be more prone to flares or anything like that. It's through working with someone and noting the patterns that start to arise that we can make more and more individualized approaches. But being very generalized and creating a generalized guideline or saying you must eat this kind of food at this time is uh, not well supported and it actually could impose risk to the person because it can um, make them buy into a belief that they're inherently fragile at a time where actually that individual might feel super strong. I've had people tell me that ovulation is a time when we f should feel super strong, and to me that's laughable because that's when I am definitely most prone to injury. It's just a, a pattern I've noticed over the last uh, 12 years. So I listen to my pattern. <laughs> yeah, and that makes me think of a lot of the, s the female strongman athletes that I've worked with over the years, strong women athletes. You know, if if they have this preconceived notion that they're always going to be super weak at this one point in their cycle, I mean, they would they'd be losing competitions before they even started. So anecdotally, I know from a lot of athletes that that really hasn't had a lot of correlation. And I think it's really tricky when you get to team sports because individualization within team sports when they're going through training phases is already really difficult. Yeah. Um, so that, I think, is, is a separate topic. But if, like, you're training yourself or you're working with someone and you see something online that tells you at this particular point in your cycle you should definitively do X, Y, Z, um, it, it is worth your while to sort of like question that, step back and see what your act, your reality is. Because um, I've seen some prominent CrossFit athletes saying things that get a lot of people uh, behind them thinking, oh, they're giving me, like they're helping me when really actually there was a fair bit of risk in their message and it wasn't, necessarily factually correct or supported. Yeah, and I guess that, that kind of segues us into this next one that's, you know, telling people they have to train at a certain time in their cycle. Uh, the next thing we're going to speak to is, is protein intake. Um, and there's always been rules around protein about how much you should have and when you should have it to be, to be ideal. So there's some, some research that just came out um, like less than a month ago in December uh, that really looked at if there was a limit to how much protein we can consume. So things that we, we know uh, are that protein intake is very important for overall health, especially when it comes to maintaining muscle mass, uh, which is very important for health and aging, which we spoke to on a, on a recent podcast. 
so this how much do we need and how much can we use question, they're constantly being, being looked at and recommendations are, are coming out. I wrote an article on how much protein is uh, recommended uh, a couple years ago, and you can find that on the, on the website. I think it's called the Complete Protein Guide. Um, and again, there's recommendations there for how much protein that you need. But today we're going to talk about how much can you use in one sitting. So the information or myth or whatever you want to call it has always been that 30 grams is all we can ingest in one meal. And research has generally shown that an individual can digest 20 to 40 grams of protein in a meal and that that would be dependent on how large this individual is. So a smaller person, maybe about 20 grams in a meal and a larger person around 40 grams in a meal. Well, now we have new research that challenges this. Um, what's interesting is that this new research was done in vivo, so within humans. And if you want to nitpick on this, it's that it was done in a, in a pretty small group um, and it was all healthy young men who were experienced lifters and this research was done right after a weightlifting session. So it's a pretty small population and very, very specific. It's, like, it's the simplest group you could do for research like this. In previous research, they weren't able to look much past, I think, six hours post-workout to see what happened to protein. The assumption was that any protein over this 40 grams would just be oxidized, so there'd be excess uh, nitrogen within the system they'd be able to, to see, and there'd be elevated oxidization. Well, in this, uh, this study, they used quadruple isotope tracer feeding infusion, guys. Yeah. Well, that means it's just they were able to track for 12 hours post-workout. It's just a very fancy way of saying that. And uh, what they found here is that, well, first of all, they gave uh, one group zero grams of protein, they gave another 25 grams, they gave another 100 grams. And what they found was actually a dose response um, to the amount of protein. So even if you took 100 grams, it wasn't that you were going to use 25 grams of that and the rest was just going to be oxidized. It's that the more protein you took, the longer it was continued to be used by the body after the workout. Uh, and this is really cool research. Again, it's done in a very specific population, so there are a lot of caveats to this. Uh, but this is really interesting, especially for lifting populations, because we don't really know if this will translate to the general pop who aren't lifting weights. But it's really the lifting populations who want this information, people who are trying to get bigger, trying to get stronger, and want to know how they can optimize their protein intake. So this is really cool for people who might, you know, have to work out in the mornings and then might not be able to eat for six or eight hours after their workout because they have to go work a job. Uh, it's good. Or people who go to bed, uh, they work out and they have to go to bed pretty quickly after their workouts. Now we know you can have a high amount of protein, 100 grams, and that your body will continue to use it if you've just had a workout. Again, if you're a young, healthy, trained male. So really cool information that challenges what we've known uh, about how much protein can be digested in one meal. So speaking about uh, recovery techniques like eating enough protein, there's been a lot of talk about breathing techniques lately, Freya, and I think you have something you want to speak to on that topic. Yeah, so uh, I'm not sure how long ago, but we used to think that we couldn't really influence our autonomic nervous system, so our breathing rate, heart rate, and so on. This is long enough ago. We've known that meditation techniques and breathing techniques can help us slow down our breathing rate. They can help us lower our blood pressure and slow down our heart rate and ultimately change our psychological profile in, in less fancy terms, make you feel better. 
There is a specific type of breathing that is part of the Wim Hof method that has gained a lot of popularity. It's, uh, he uses a more hyperventilation style breathing technique followed by a breath hold. Now the Wim Hof method itself is comprised of that breathing style as well as meditation visualization and cold exposure. And you know, the. The research supporting different facets is there, but it, the research about the entire method is uh, in its infancy. One of the first studies looked at him because he's known as the Iceman. He holds a lot of world records doing some really incredible feats in the cold, so running a marathon on snow and ice, things that, and not wearing very much, as far as I recall. So things that, you know, us mere mortals uh, wouldn't necessarily expose ourselves to, or if we did, we would be imposing a lot of risk on our systems if we didn't do that without adequate training. With that said, a research study on him, just like Dane said about the protein study, can't be generalized to everybody else. Other research studies looking at cold exposure alone have not been on the Wim Hof method necessarily. So one of them was, and except that it was in a very specific population of Arctic explorers. If you know that you're going to the Arctic and you're going to need to develop a degree of tolerance for cold exposure, it stands to reason that gaining uh, or having some tools that allow you to gain some level of comfort will have a positive psychological effect on you by the time you do go on that Arctic expedition. So again, that's a very specialized population. Other studies have, have not been specific to the Wim Hof method. They've been done in open water swimmers that is generally a very cold environment as well. So recently, there have been a few studies that have looked at the method itself, because the method itself proposes that in a short amount of time, you'll gain more energy, reduce stress levels, and gain an augmented, augmented sorry, immune response that swiftly deals with pathogens. So researchers have now, a few researchers have now looked at that. And uh, one of the studies was done in elite runners and they were actually looking mostly at oxygen um, consumption and breathing efficiency and found that there were no differences. But two studies looked at the general population. And I would say it must be pretty hard to find people who haven't heard about the Wim Hof method because it kind of blew up on social media and one of the things you need to conduct a randomized controlled trial is you need participants who haven't heard about it or tried it on for size before. So suffice it to say these two studies are relatively small but significantly bigger than what has, has been there previously and you're also looking for people who don't know anything about these or this method. One of them had just over 20 people in the participant group and then just over 20 people in the control group. And they did their study, their protocol was 15 days long and they used all elements of the Wim Hof method. The other study was three months long. It was a much smaller population. So there were eight people, three of which were female, five were male. And they looked at the Wim Hof method over the course of three months. What was interesting about these studies is that there's actually a fair bit of overlap in terms of the tools they use to measure the results. So that's really relevant when it comes to compiling data and looking at it later because even if you have two studies that have very similar methodology but they used completely different tools to measure you know, positive effect or perceived stress scale uh, or any of the other markers, then it becomes very hard to compare 
pair of the two of them. So they actually had a lot of overlap in the tools that they were using, which is helpful. And they were also looking at very similar um, physiological outcomes or physiological metrics like heart rate, blood pressure, and HRV. They were also looking at positive and negative effect scale to gain insight into their psychological state. They were also looking at perceived stress scale. So that was both studies in terms of how they crossed over. And in both cases, uh, they didn't find that following the Wim Hof method exerted any positive effect uh, psychologically or cardiovascularly. And as far as the immune system side of things, based on my understanding, they didn't really look at those fully, but that's a very tricky, <laughs> it's a very tricky thing to look at or to make assumptions around as, as to whether you have boosted it or not, because we're still learning about how it works, and we're still uh, breaking down, like, you know, what happens when we train our muscles, because we see an increase in inflammatory uh, components, but then we can also see that the muscles are protected against it. So like our interpretation of whether you're getting an immune system boost, I don't think is um, really fleshed out enough. And I don't think anyone researching it would, would be so concrete as to say, yes, this will definitively boost your immune system, partly because so many things influence your immune system. And uh, you know that starts from, from infancy your immune system will be different if you were able to breastfeed versus like early life immune system versus if you were unable to breastfeed. So again, it's just a far more complex thing that we, we can't, we can certainly influence our stress state, we can influence our autonomic nervous system, we know this, we can't necessarily say that something can immediately boost your, your nervous system or sorry, your immune system. Um, what I would say about this is that if you have, uh, and I would love to see studies on this, if you have started following the Wim Hof method with a group of people, or whether it's online or in person, but particularly in person, I know we have several groups in the city that follow the method together and go take dips in the lake. I, I see that as um, incredibly beneficial because you're doing something as part of a community. And I know we've spoken about community several times, even in <laughs> this season so far. And uh, if you like it and if it's creating a network of support, then great. Have at it. Like I, I, I don't see I don't see that you should stop just because of these studies. But with that said, we do have to be very careful of what the claims are. If you're someone who's like, you know, <laughs> forcing yourself to do it because you have been told this'll do X, Y, and Z for your psychological state or your um, immune system but you're forcing yourself to do it, you're generally high-strung anyway, then it might not be the right tool for you, and that's okay. There are other breathing and meditation tools that might be more beneficial for you in particular. If you have a heart condition, you have high blood pressure, or you have um, dysautonomia, such as postural orthostatic tachycardia, maybe don't jump into the Wim Hof method with a, with a cold exposure because that can impose high risk. But it's not to say don't go and learn a breathing tool that can help you regulate your system. I, I run um, <laughs> in a more high adrenaline way. So for me, doing a hyperventilation technique followed by a breath hold is not necessarily super supportive of my system. It's much more like a slap in the face, whereas my system kind of needs like a calm little pat on the head. So I think this is where we really need um, people to just make a decision based on their individual needs. If you're already really high strung, maybe employ a different sort of breathing and meditation technique. Um, but if you find that this is 
really helping you feel more centered, more in control, and part of a community, then great, keep going. The, the key is really anything that you do consistently can have a really huge impact over time. And ultimately, with a couple of the clients that I've worked with, uh, they were largely doing it because they got caught up in sort of like the social media side of things very innocently. So I think that social media can, can do that a fair bit. But when it really boiled down to it, uh, two of them in particular found that, oh, actually, I've been doing this for a little longer than my system is actually tolerant to it because it was now roped into this kind of like, have you taken your picture outside of your cold plunge bath or, or by the lake kind of thing. So always step back from any sort of hype and really focus on your own internal process with anything that you do, any kind of meditation, any kind of breathing, um, because that's really where you know, you'll be able to get a better reading on what your system is doing, which is kind of what we hope to get at over the course of all of our podcasts is like you really dialing in uh, to what you need. Yeah, it's another great example of not living in polarity in black and white. It's not that Wim Hof is good or bad. It depends on the context of that situation and the individual or where that individual is at the time. Um, which applies to pretty much everything. everything. It's very rare that something is absolutely good or absolutely bad. That's a very uh, very tough place to live life. It's very polarizing and does not lead to good outcomes. Well, we all know we need, we need water, we need sleep, we need movement. How you get those things, we do need to self-regulate. You know, meditation is one way of doing that. Movement is also one way of doing that. But how you get those things can, can be different. Speaking of sleep. There you go. Good segue. Thanks. Thanks, bud. The next thing we're going to look at is the topic of sleep. We know sleep is good for health. Uh, eight hours of sleep is known as the sweet spot. Uh, between seven to nine hours is the general recommendations for adults. Teens can use a little bit more. Adults maybe a little bit less. Anything under six hours is generally considered to be short sleep and uh, has a higher association with chronic health issues. Uh, circadian, circadian rhythms, which we've spoken to on this podcast before, are also tied to health. Uh, we're learning more and more all the time. I f still feel like we're really just scratching the surface about circadian rhythms, but basically every cell in our body has a clock, and it's highly attuned to light, food, stress, a number of things. And sporadic circadian rhythms are correlated with health problems. So uh, there was a study that came out in October of this past year, and it was looking at uh, sleep regularity um, rather than just sleep duration and seeing which was more correlated with uh, a higher risk of, of overall death. So uh, in this study, there were 61,000 participants. So there's a, quite a robust amount of people. Good. And it was done over three years, and they used wearable technology to measure sleep regularity index. Um, so more or less, people wore a little watch on the wrist, and that uh, kind of tracked when they slept and how long they slept for. Uh, the population of this study was people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, and was roughly split between men and women, which is always uh, something we want to see. And then eight years after the study, they did follow-ups for total mortality or seeing how many people uh, died. So the results of this were very interesting. The more irregular sleep patterns were, the higher the risk of death, whether that was all cause from cancer or cardiometabolic. This sleep irregularity was more correlated to death than sleep duration was. 
So what I found really interesting about this study, Freya, is that the average sleep duration of people within this study was about, it was between six and seven hours. So it wasn't in that kind of sweet spot for what we want for optimal health in terms of the sleep duration that we recommend. And the longest sleep duration group was just under eight hours. So like nobody, no group based on aging, because they divided it by age group, um, nobody slept longer than eight hours, which I thought was, uh, was really interesting. And overall, it was the lowest percentile group, so the 0 to 20%, really the, the bottom of the barrel of, of uh, the results here that had the worst health outcome. So it was really the extreme uh, variability within sleep that caused the most problems. So what does this teach us? This teaches us, maybe, gives us some insight that it might be more important to get, you know, six and a half, seven hours sleep consistently than having sporadic sleep lengths all over the place. So even if you're not getting that eight hours, maybe it's more important that you get that eight hours by going to bed at, you know, 10 o'clock every night and waking up at 5 a.m. every morning than it is to do that one night and then maybe go to bed at 6 p.m. one night and sleep until 6 a.m. the next morning and get a variety of different uh, bedtimes and wake times. And this jives with the previous research that we have that shows us that shift workers are at a greater risk of chronic disease. Shift workers obviously have the most sporadic, the most sleep irregularity because sometimes they're going to bed in the morning and sometimes they're going to bed in the evenings. Uh, this also shows that small fluctuations in sleep patterns probably aren't much to worry about, but large fluctuations are very hard on health. So anybody who is shift working or, you know, traveling a lot that's very very hard on health and that's why jet lag feels so terrible <laughs> um so if there's a recommendation i know we've spoken about this before if there's a recommendation around sleep hygiene uh for anybody out there it's to try and get to bed and wake up within the same hour window every night and every morning so whether you're somebody who gets six and a half seven seven and a half eight in that window anywhere just try and make sure you're consistent with when you go to bed and when you wake up. It's extended sleep-ins or staying out super late and throwing those wrenches into things that this research really found was what was hardest on health, um, not just total duration. So this is really interesting research, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of spin-offs of this in the future to dial down a little bit more to determine if regularity might be that sleep thing that is the most important. All right, and from sleep, let's step into step count and walking speed. That was a bad pun because I used the same word. <laughs> Thanks, James. No problem. All right. I did great. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> we already know uh, that we've spoken about walking speed. This particular study was looking at step counts and at walking speed and trying to determine a dose-response relationship. So this was a review that looked at 12 other studies, and they're trying to determine a dose-response relationship between step counts and all-cause mortality and cardiovascular disease, as well as walking speed and all-cause mortality and cardiovascular disease risk. So over uh, the 12 studies, there were a total of 111,000 participants, so it's quite a bit of data, and all the data was objective. This means that people weren't reporting in saying, oh, I walked 5,000 steps six months ago, uh, because nobody can remember that far back. They were all using some form of, of pedometer, so some form of wearable tracking device to get a true measure of what their steps were. 
interestingly, they found that as far as the step count goes, regardless of walking speed, we'll park that for a second, but the step count itself was really um, prominently beneficial when you got to 2,500 steps at least. So if you were walking 2,000 steps or less, you had a much greater risk of cardiovascular disease and all-cause mortality. As soon as you got to 2,500 steps a day, we started to see the risk uh, reduce. Up to uh, 2,700 steps a day, you started to see the, or sorry, 2,500 steps was a reduction in all-cause mortality. 2,700 steps was a reduction in cardiovascular disease as well. So it was really interesting that they both had like slightly different amounts, not by, not by much admittedly, but slightly different amounts within which uh, we started to see the risk go down. Now, there was sort of a, a continuation of risk reduction all the way up to almost 9,000 steps. A lot of people will have heard the recommendation of walking 10,000 steps a day. And we know that this was not based on data collection. It was a, a little bit arbitrary to encourage a population to get moving and to give them some sort of target because people do do better with targets, like sleeping eight hours, drinking this many glasses of water, walking and counting up to this many steps. Because most people, if they're carrying a phone, they have a built-in pedometer these days. So giving people a target is incredibly helpful. It helps them quantify their efforts and gives, some, gives them something to aim for. People love to pick those numbers apart. And you know, I totally understand that it doesn't mean that every single human being out there who can ambulate requires 10,000 steps a day to be well, and that's not really what the message was. But it was interesting to see that the lowest risk for all-cause mortality and cardiovascular disease was up near 10,000 steps per day. So um, the other thing that was shown was that walking faster was helpful or beneficial in lowering all-cause mortality and cardiovascular disease. This confirms what has already been shown with other studies. And when we say faster, it doesn't mean that you have to speed walk and go at a very vigorous pace. Vigorous is relative to your own body and your own capacity. They found that people who picked up the pace to go from low to an intermediate pace based on their own perception had more benefits as far as uh, reducing the risk of all-cause mortality and reducing the risk of cardiovascular disease development. So our key takeaways really are uh, walk faster, at least some of the time, and then check in on your step counts. So some people think, because they tell us, they say, oh no, I, I walk a lot, like in the process of us asking them that. So oh, I walk a lot. And when we look at it and quantify it, we realize that Actually, it's, it's not really that much, and compared to these particular numbers, it, it's really not enough to combat the, um, well, the risk. Obviously, <laughs> there are a lot of factors in risks for all-cause mortality and cardiovascular disease, but we realize that they're actually at quite a low amount, especially if the rest of their day is spent in more sedentary static postures. So if you think you do walk a lot, just check in. See if your phone has some sort of app that tracks step counts and see what your averages have been. It's not worth obsessing over it every single day, but looking and seeing what your general trends are can be really helpful and it helps you quantify where you're at right now versus where you might have thought you were and then see if you need to bump it up a little bit. And this might just mean that you um, take the stairs instead of the elevator at work and you do that a few times a day. You go to the farther washroom in your office building versus the one close by. Little things like that really add up because it doesn't mean that you need to just go for one long walk. It 
can it does count all the all the in-betweens. I know we've spoken to that concept of movement snacks previously. If you're not walking at all, um, you greatly reduced it for any number of reasons, whether it was illness or other uh, reasons behind deconditioning, start small, like really small. Walk steadily back and forth in your home for one minute at a time and repeat that five times throughout the day. And with some of my clients and even myself at uh, some very low health points, some of my clients have started this way and I've started this way and it it does get better from there. So even if you can't do the, you know, the, the minimum based on this study of 2,500 steps, that's okay. Doing something is way better than nothing. And last note I'll make about this is if you are going to the gym regularly and you're, you're going four or five times a day, please still check your step counts. We found a lot of people who do go to the gym regularly don't necessarily make time for ambulation outside of that. And if you want to take care of your low back, your digestive health, and, and, and truthfully, your entire back, inclusive of your, your neck and shoulder health, um, it, it, it is well worth walking. Like Take the time to build in some walks. So as long as you're not looking down at your phone while you walk, it has all sorts of benefits for your body that are like well beyond just the the risk for cardiovascular disease. There, we get we start to get into uh, the inner workings of your innards, <laughs> your digestive health, and then also uh, your joint health, like your entire spine, your shoulder girdle, your hips, you name it. And uh, I believe you just pulled a Dane and you said those who go to the gym four to five times a day. Oh gosh. Four to five times a week. Four to five times a day. Stop doing that. Rubbing off on you. <laughs> Sorry, Dane. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. Do we have time for a bonus? We do. Amazing. You guys are, we said six. You're going to get eight. So well, not really. Oh. You're going to get some cool, notable mentions. Some cool, notable mentions. Two extras. The one I want to speak about is about saturated fat. There was a study released earlier this year, September, earlier last year, I guess. Later last year, September 2023, it was another umbrella review. It looked at 17 meta-analyses and systematic reviews. So again, a lot of research uh, which looked at reducing saturated fat in the diet or replacing saturated fat with unsaturated fat, carbohydrate, or protein. And it looked at the total risk of mortality, cancer, and cardiometabolic outcomes in adults. The conclusion was that systematic reviews investigating the impact of saturated fatty acids on mortality in major cancer and cardiometabolic outcomes almost universally suggest very small absolute changes in risk. And the data is based primarily on low and very low certainty evidence. All this means is that you cannot vilify saturated fat as being the cause for cardiovascular disease. And I guess the moral of the story here, I mean, it's not to say that Saturated fat's worse than unsaturated or saturated, blah, blah, blah. It's not worse or better. It's just you can't pinpoint one tiny nutrient in the diet of any sort and say that is the cause of more death or more cancer or more this. So whether it's saturated fat or carbohydrates or whatever you want to nitpick on, that's never going to be the answer. If you want to figure out what's going on with you, take a broad scope of what's going on with your nutrition, your sleep, your, your social interactions, your everything at all, and that is, is what you're going to find in terms of uh, your improved health. My cool notable mention, or what I think is a cool notable mention, has to do with a study done in mice. There were two groups. One group was raised with a rich or diverse 
gut colony, so they had a very healthy gut. And then the other group was raised without any gut microbiome. And they're, they're called germ-free mice, and this model is used a fair bit to study certain effects uh, as far as gut bacteria and antibiotics and so on. So this particular study looked at exercise motivation and performance. And in mice, performance can be equated to how far they, they ran in a wheel, uh, or how long they ran, depending on, on what metric they're using. Usually it's length of time or duration. And then their motivation to do so. They found that with the mice that had the gut colony, they had very high performance. And as soon as they gave them an antibiotic, their motivation to perform and their performance dropped completely. When they also transferred that gut bacteria to the germ-free mice, the germ-free mice all of a sudden started demonstrating high motivation and high performance. So their little mouse performance <laughs> and their motivation to perform were directly linked to gut microbiome, which is really, really interesting. And granted, this is in mice, but it still gives us a lot of really cool information on how we are motivated to move or how mammals are motivated to move and what can influence that, which is why, uh, you know, it, it is so tricky to even dial in what makes one person a higher performer versus another because here we're seeing that the gut biome played a huge influence. We also know that there are psychological parameters, environmental parameters when it comes to humans. Uh, we don't necessarily have access to um, the facilities. So there are all sorts of things that influence us as human beings that won't necessarily influence a mouse in a lab, but it is still incredibly interesting um, research. Yes, it is. And I think just to kind of summarize, like all the research that we discussed today, it doesn't necessarily prove anything definitively. It's just with research, we're always learning more and we're always layering into what did the previous research, research tell us. Yeah, and you know, typically that just allows for more refined questions thereafter or whole new questions that we didn't even know could be asked beforehand and sometimes some, some surprising results come about that lead down an entirely different rabbit hole. I think where there is some risk, what we've touched on, is when people will cherry pick little parts of research or one research study gets published and people create a product fully around that, that's where there's risk. Otherwise, all these studies and, uh, and reviews had some really interesting uh, information to them to help us understand certain metabolic processes or you know, our sleep regularity, our step count and walking. And in large part, most of these contributed to mounting evidence to these things really matter, <laughs> so pay attention to them. But we do encourage people that no matter what they hear, that they start to gain a little bit of curiosity about the research itself, even if they are seeing something pushed that's citing research, like, go look at the research too. And uh, we will link in all of these studies to the blog post associated with the podcast. So if you're listening to this, please just head over to our website and you can also check out the studies themselves. Yeah, just check out the show notes and they'll be down there. And, uh, yeah, you know, we've seen some places on social media where people may reference certain studies. They'll say, oh, this happened in this study, and they'll throw a reference in there, and it didn't really – that's not what the research was saying at all. So, yeah, please check out the show notes. Go in. Be curious. Think critically. Look at all the research and see how might it apply to you or how might it 
not apply to you. Uh, and uh, that's how you'll continue to move forward with what works best for you and your body. Yeah, and understandably, some of the terminology may not be altogether that familiar uh, to you. I mean, there are certain areas of research that I can't read. I am not an expert in that area, and the terms are not ones that I'm familiar with, that I haven't studied in either of my degrees, and that's fair enough. You can, you can also have a, a good discussion with a subject matter expert, if that's the case, if you can reach out to them, or you can, these days there are a lot of research studies that will also publish uh, charts and pictures, especially when it comes to human health, less so some of the other fields, but they'll, they'll give you flow charts or they'll give you really um, easily digested infographics. And so if you do go to look at the actual paper, you may not be able to deduce like all of the uh, methodology pieces. Like you may, may not be familiar with some of those tests and that's okay. You'll still see what the researchers themselves concluded in the form of the infographic or the chart that was expressly built to help that knowledge translation piece to the end user. Yeah, and a lot of researchers are more and more accessible these days online, too. So if you ever, like, some see somebody saying, hey, this is what this research found, and you didn't feel like that, you know, you can go on online on Instagram, on Twitter, and find their, yeah. find their handle and be like, hey, is this what your research found? Like, people are, are, are more, uh, more accessible than ever. So if you ever just stay curious and, and reach out when you can and get to the bottom of things yourself instead of just believing what you see. Da, 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 da. So I think that is it for today on the Move Daily Health Podcast. As I mentioned earlier, you can find us at our website at movewelldaily.com or on Instagram at move underscore daily underscore EDS. And as always, please like and subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. Thanks for tuning in, and we will catch you next time on the Move Daily Health Podcast. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. To hear more, head on over to Stitcher or iTunes and subscribe to the Move Daily Health Podcast. And don't hesitate to leave us a review. Thanks for listening.